Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have two amazing visitors. Uh, we have uh, Nina Martinez, who donated a kidney, and we have Ken Teasley, who has uh, both received the kidney and has been a, um, a, a huge advocate for uh, us improving the work that we do and patients receiving what they need. I'm hoping I pronounced everybody's name correctly. Yes. Great. So I'm, I'm just going to uh, start by um, asking uh, Nina Martinez, tell us a little bit about yourself and your uh, journey to being an organ donor. If I may, because it is kind of the central theme in transplantation, I would actually like for Ken to go first, since one, his story does predate mine in transplantation. And also, two, I want people to know that while donor stories are engaging and important, everything that we do in transplantation is for the health of the recipient. So, Ken, if you wouldn't mind, I would love for people to hear your story first. All right, Um, Ken, uh, step off the on-deck circle and you're up to bat. Okay. Thank you, Nina. My name is Ken Teasley, of course. Um, I was born in a small town in the South, Salisbury, North Carolina. I moved to New York in 91 after processing out of the Army. And in 93, I was diagnosed with uh, HIV. And about six months later, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. Mm. At that time, we did not have well, I don't know if we had access to dialysis, but I know we did not have access to transplant, which was okay for me because at the time I did not want to transplant. By the time the uh, HOPE Act became law in 2013, I thought it was good for somebody else, and but it would never happen to me. Mm-hmm. I still wasn't sure if I wanted to transplant or not. Uh, by that time, I had been asymptomatic and undetectable for roughly 20 years. So one of the big questions in my head was, if I do a transplant, will that set off the firestorm? And that was that was a really big question for me. It actually had to take me two or three visits in order to feel comfortable enough to actually go, go along with the transplant. Uh, mm-hmm. But in 2016, I was approached by the transplant center. They called me in. And of course, you everything is going through your head. It's like, did I have enough? Was I in the hospital too much? What was going on? Why did they need to speak to me? Uh, the whole thing. I had been on the transplant list for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't really heard from them in the three years. So when I went in to see them, the surgeon started talking to me about the HOPE Act. He mentioned uh, research, and I immediately said yes. He said, but you have to wait for me to tell you everything. So I listened to everything, and of course, I said yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two months later, I got a call for a transplant. Um, I went to the hospital around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I was wheeled into the the, uh, operating room at 10 Mm -hmm. that night. I wasn't really ready to go first, <laughs> but the person who was actually supposed to go first hadn't showed up yet. So they took me first. I went in. It 
kind of started out as a religious experience for me. I grew up in a church. So the operating room or the operating table eventually laid out to be a cross. (laughs) And uh, I had this religious experience while I was there. I still wasn't sure until the uh, propofol kicked in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I woke up the next morning and the first thing I said was, what the hell did I just do? And it's been one wild ride after another. I went to the transplant games in 2018. And that was a little scary for me. Uh, number one, uh, I, I just assumed that I was the only HIV positive person there mm-hmm. um, out of the 5,000 people. So uh, I was a little scared as I was walking to my first event. My kidneys started vibrating <laughs> and, and um, it just was like I was supposed to be there. And when I got back, I started volunteering with the local OPO and I've been volunteering with them for since 2018 right now. I'm still doing it, but I was already entrenched in the kidney community. Mm-hmm. Um, I had joined the IPRO network, uh, IPRO ESRD Network of New York as a PFR, which is a person who is actually in the facility that actually trains other patients or mm. teaches other, educates other patients. Mm-hmm. And from there, I became a board member um, on the medical review board. And I do, I just do a lot of things in the community, especially around transplant and organ donation. I've been very involved with uh, Live on New York, which is our OPO. And organ donor enrollment day is really big. And uh, April is another big month. My face is basically everywhere Mm. Uh, here in New York. It's on bus shelters. It's on pamphlets. I've been on the Jumbotron and Times Square. I've done a couple promos on TV. Uh, One of the first ones I did was a promo for the hospital after my transplant. And uh, according to the research department, it has fostered the most HOPAC transplants in New York. Um, wow. Basically, I happen to be the first HOPAC transplant in New York. And uh, I think that's it. So before we uh, dive into uh, Nina Martinez's story, for people that are listening but don't know, what is what is HOPAC? Uh, the HOPAC actually allows for HIV positive donors to transplant to uh, HIV positive recipients. My donor happened to be deceased. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really hit me and especially my partner a lot was that she was also from North Carolina. Hmm. Okay, we'll we'll dig in a little bit deeper soon, but uh, go ahead, Nina. Thank you, Ken, so much for sharing. And uh, I have a selfish reason as a donor for you to have wanted to, to, for me to have wanted you to share first, because I am a non-directed donor. I initially started the the process as the nation's first living kidney donor under the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act. Uh, I intended to donate to a friend. And unfortunately, he passed away about four months before I eventually donated. So I have not had the opportunity to engage with the wider kidney or broader transplant community. And I was so glad when I met you, we were introduced by a mutual friend of ours, Amanda Nicastro. So I need to give her a shout out. 
who herself is a living kidney donor who donated in a paired kidney exchange. And about three months after I donated in Johns Hopkins in March of 2019 was the donation. Three months later, I went on a kidney moon to New York. So lots of people take baby moons and honeymoons. And I was in, mm. I was intent on taking a kidney moon. And I went to this event that was a one woman play that Amanda was performing called I'm Just Kidneying. And she introduced me to Ken Teasley at this event. And I will say that maintaining a friendship with Ken has, has given me the insight on the other side of um, the coin in transplantation. Because honestly, I didn't really know anything about transplantation until after I donated, which is usually how most donors end up. With their knowledge base, usually people are directing their donation to someone they know. That's how they become involved. That is definitely how I became involved. There are lots of conversations around decisions that you would make if, for example, you had some kind of outcome expectation. Would you still donate if your recipient ultimately didn't make it? Things like that. And the idea of that in the evaluation process is to make sure that you're making a decision that's free of guilt, pressure, or coercion. For my part, I just wanted to do it to show that I could do it because I was so tired of these long-held stigmatizing beliefs that people in America had, uh, healthcare providers or not, about people living with HIV. And I knew that if I, it wasn't really a big deal to me. I knew I had known people that had kidneys removed for clinical reasons. People with HIV who who get kidney cancer have kidneys removed. People are born with one kidney, so. I knew that it was empirically possible. The real question was, do these organs work in recipients who are HIV positive um, once they've been transplanted? And we, we had some promising data from the deceased donor hope data to show that. So I don't know, the shock or surprise or people were really excited when I got cut. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, People are less excited. Uh, we'll talk about it when the paper came out showing our outcomes. And like, lo and behold, I've been HIV positive for now 40 years. And after four years of donor follow-up, I'm, I'm doing fine. That wasn't exactly as newsworthy as Nina Martinez gets a kidney reaped <laughs> for science. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who seeks to like get married or have kids as a chronically ill child. You know, I had acquired HIV through a blood transfusion in, in 1983 in San Francisco. I wasn't diagnosed with HIV until I was eight years old. Uh, in the early 90s was a wild time. They didn't think about women and children and people's expectations for survival were pretty much in the garbage. So through participating in clinical research once I reached college years. For me, it was a way to give science, give back to the science that helped save my life. So it also allowed me to learn about the clinical research project uh, process. And by the time I approached Hopkins, I had been a clinical research volunteer for 16 years. So that, that whole research part was not uncomfortable for me. Donating was not uncomfortable for me. I think it was much more uncomfortable for the transplant center who didn't have experience, obviously me being the first with HIV positive living donors. And then um, their research side, I think people don't, they appreciate participation for sure, but they don't have a great appreciation for what it takes to get into table one. I mean, by the time you put everything in a paper, 
there's a lot of overly honest methods that gets left out. And I had to travel to Baltimore from Atlanta, where I reside nine times to finish the study. So, you know, for me personally, it was just to show that I could do it. I didn't have any expectations of outcomes. I'm glad that people like Ken are doing well and sharing that story because it's one thing for me to say that I off the kidney. You know, I'm not discounting. I know what it took. I did it, you know, but unless you talk to the people who said yes to receiving this kind of organ, my eventual recipient said, yes, I will take a kidney from Nina Martinez. Unless you hear the stories of people like Ken, how do you expect to convince people that these transplants are worth doing? That's not to say anything of my recipient who is elected to maintain his privacy. I will Mm -hmm. say that the public face of this is a lot of work and, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, that's just kind of in a nutshell, kind of covering the 40 years of how how I came to do it. But I will absolutely say that meeting Ken kind of is is the key in the lock for me and, and listening to him. And, and it helps me because for a few years, I was carrying that that hope banner on such a wide stage, but I only had half the story. And mm-hmm. so meeting Ken has made me a better advocate for hope as well. Oh, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) So uh, I was recently reading a little bit about stories. And uh, and we are, of course, the uh, storytelling and story listening animal. And they said that uh, compelling stories often have a uh, a character that is uh, challenged and has to make a decision. And through that decision then uh, the story becomes interesting and growth. And both of you guys uh, have had to make multiple challenging decisions at many times in your life. Uh, and that's uh, that's why you guys are heroes and your stories are so compelling. Uh, Ken, tell us about some of the um, decisions as to when uh, you've decided that a huge challenging uh, decision was to... Um, to do the transplant. You were on dialysis. Nobody that I know likes dialysis, but it was something that you were doing and you knew how to do. And then you decided to take a risk and do something uh, challenging. Tell us about Um, (laughs) That's actually a humorous story. When I started dialysis, I walked into the place, the social workers say, come in for a orientation. And you think an orientation is, you know, like, for a job, you go to the orientation, mm-hmm. and see what's going on, and and there was nothing. I had to sign the papers. They took me to the chair, and they stuck the needles in my arm. Because I was a pre-dialysis patient, I tried to be proactive in everything that I do. And one of the things I did was I got a fistula about two years before I actually needed it. Mm-hmm. So when I got to dialysis, it was f- fully mature. But once they stuck the needles in, um, I actually kind of made up my mind that I wanted to transplant. I wanted to get off this. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know if for 17 years I had been preparing for it. I'm going to get two needles (laughs) three days a week. I just wasn't prepared for that. I passed out a lot. But once I uh, made that decision, I picked up the phone and I called because uh, my nephrologist had told me uh, about four or five years earlier in 20, 2002, that uh, Mount Sinai was the only hospital in New York actually doing transplants on HIV-positive people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I kept that in my back pocket. So when I made that decision, I picked up the phone and I called and I made an appointment for evaluation. Um, I went into evaluation. It lasted four hours. This was in December of 2010. In February, I got a call from the hospital. They had accepted me to the program. One of the things for HIV positive people is we have to belong to a program before. We have to be undetectable. We have to be uh, Mm -hmm. asymptomatic, you know, all of that stuff. What was different about me is I had been off meds (laughs) since 1999 when Mm -hmm. a doctor took me off. And that started a whole nother whirlwind about like what's going to happen because I didn't know anybody else who was not taking meds. Everybody I knew was taking meds. So um, I signed up for it. I waited, what, five and a half years. In that time, I had one of my kidneys removed. I had kidney cancer, RCC, Mm. by laparoscopy. I had a stroke. I was hospitalized with uh, pneumonia and uh, the flu, which incidentally was only like three or four months before the transplant. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't really know if that was going to happen or not. But there was something that happened a couple uh, in 2017. It was really after the promo for the hospital came out. I was at an event and someone as I call it, uh, violated my HIPAA rights and mentioned HIV and stared at me for like 10 minutes, prompting everyone to stare at me. Mm. Uh, But they said something kooky about uh, that you could get HIV from a faucet. And it caused an uproar. (laughs) Uh, People were spitting out their food. They were getting up and leaving. Um, But I kind of felt that I needed to set the record straight. It took me a, a a good minute because I didn't really do anything until my birthday or my rebirthday, um, which is after my birthday. So what I did was I took the uh, interview that we had done for the promo. I broke it up into sections and I started posting it on all social media in hopes that somebody would know later on when i got to uh, live on new york um, i would go out and do rounds with the NICUs and you know that type of thing and always 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 there was always a doctor or a nurse who didn't know that this was available to people with hiv Mm -hmm. Um, so i had to let them know and that just started the whole thing for me so um a lot there, but uh, why do you think that so many doctors and clinicians don't know that these resources are available? What's the problem? Well, what I think is sometimes it's still a death trap. People still think that we're going to die, uh, that it's not going to be viable. It's not going to last. A lot of it has to do with, and, you know, Don't get on my back about this, but I think a lot of it has to do with the people who are teaching them. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that my nephrologist always used to say to me is, you're not in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always always believe that. He's been saying that to me for like 21 years now, and I still believe that, which is why I 
participated in a lot of research now, non-medical research, which means that I don't get into medicines and things like that, but into the real stuff like mentoring and, you know, more of the behavioral stuff, Mm -hmm. exercise, you know, that kind of thing. But it has to do with medicines. I kind of stay stay away from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just want to stick with the stuff that I really have right now and uh, do that. It's lasted me for 30 years now and it hasn't gone awry. Yeah. I I think that teaching comes in uh, so many forms and we're very fortunate in 2023 that we have uh, different technology to do teaching that's beyond the, uh, the textbooks. And uh, I very much appreciate you joining us as a teacher here and in all the other ways that you teach. So thank you. You're welcome. I wanted to give an answer to that question of why clinicians don't know about the HIV Oregon Policy Equity Act. I think it has to do with the short-sightedness also of research. Mm -hmm. Um, Currently, these are only available under research studies. So I think that itself gives the idea that these transplants are a nice to have, not need to have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I definitely understand that the research requirements put forth by the National Institutes of Health require that transplant centers to get approval to do these HIV to HIV transplants. They have to have experience five HIV patients in need of a transplant uh, using organs from HIV negative donors in order to be approved for using HIV positive donors. And so many transplant centers don't have that requirement. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't speak to the root cause of that, but I do also know that a lot of transplant centers or even the people referring. I mean, people in ID may know about the HOPE Act, people in transplant ID may know about the HOPE Act, but what are these providers doing to connect to general ID, to outpatient HIV docs, to nephrologists, to hepatologists, tell them about the HOPE Act? You know, it it shouldn't be up to me and Ken (laughs) to, to do all the educational work. It should be the purview of the people getting funded millions of dollars from the NIH to do these transplants. But dissemination of good science, you know, how good can the science be if nobody knows about it? And um, I think that's why Ken and I are so passionate about telling people about hope is because we don't want to be the only ones who know this. But academic medicine, certainly your time is much more structured than ours. And once you've gotten legalization of the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, the devil's in the details. And Nobody is really thinking about implementation and, you know, you have competing priorities like coronavirus, the next big thing. Uh, Currently, I hear it's pig kidneys. And I have to say, how dehumanizing is that? That after 10 years of the HIV Oregon Policy Equity Act being law, when it was promised Congress that we could have 600 to 1,000 transplants per year, but after seven years of implementation, we've only Fighting, fighting for me, aside from the fact that my friend had died prior to transplant, there's like nothing that can prepare you for that conversation. Mm. Uh, a struggle in my journey, and, and I appreciate that you asked the question because so many people think, oh, just get a transplant. It's better than dialysis or anyone can be a living donor and these messages are widespread in transplant, but they're overly simplistic. They mm-hmm. do not appreciate how difficult it is. It's a very privileged thing on both sides. And to add HIV on top of it with the layered stigma from providers, 
from, I mean, even when you tell people that you have this idea, oh, I'm going to elect to receive an HIV positive kidney, or I, as a person with HIV, am going to donate. It's like, there's so much projection that people think it's a terrible idea only because they know they wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So like, push that aside. But I will say that the whole journey, like as, as great as it sounds, was like an, an intense struggle of having to shut out the noise. Me and Ken have that um, military history in common. I come from a military family. And despite the curveball that was my friend dying, he had only been on the list at the University of Colorado for 75 days and was dual listing at Hopkins so that I could potentially donate to him. You know, I just had no idea. I had no idea how not widespread these research protocols were. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's no place you can go on organdonor.gov or you have to go to the OPTN website to see a tabular list of who's approved to donate. But I will say that inside a paywall journal article, I saw a map of hope sites and I would be (laughs) foolish not to say, had I seen that map earlier, I would have donated at the university of Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a profound thing to say, and that's nothing against my Hopkins colleagues, but again, going back to the beginning, this is supposed to be for the health of the recipient. And, you know, I wish there were more people talking to each other to implement hope. Mm-hmm. I wish it was so siloed and everyone with their independent protocols. I wish they would talk to patients. <laughs> you know, you can have the best protocol in the world, but um, I didn't exactly enjoy everything that I had to do as a donor, but I did it because I wanted it to, to leave no room for question, no room for doubt. I think the paper sets that literally straight out that that my kidney works like four ways to Sunday, or at least my remaining kidney works four ways to Sunday, and that there is no long lasting adverse effect to me. And, um, you know, this really is about what the patient wants. You know, initially, Ken was saying he was comfortable with dialysis, and he had to, to do some learning and some comfort building with the idea of transplant, because electing that is not an easy decision. Um, despite popular opinion. Myself, I was not uncomfortable with the idea. I was uncomfortable with everybody else's discomfort. And I was like, this is not, <laughs> for me on this side, this is, this is supposed to be the same thing as, as with HIV negative living donors. Um, please don't let your preconceived notions get in the way of my process because my age is not getting any younger. I would like to do this in somewhat of a timely fashion. And my friend would have liked that too, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping moving forward that having platforms like this, thank you so much to share the stories is so that people know at a minimum that these exist, people will be motivated to do better than they have been. And um, just to remember that we're people, uh, I know a lot of people were like, why would you put your name and your face out there? Because I knew that if it was just an anonymous donor at Johns Hopkins who donated a kidney, I would be easy to write off. But if I was Nina Martinez, a woman from Atlanta who donated a kidney after her friend died, you know, that's a harder story to write off. And Mm -hmm. uh, I want people, I keep keep mentioning my dead friend because I don't want him to get erased. We know that people die waiting. Mm -hmm. Moving forward to donate despite that, like I, everyone was wondering... How do you feel about that? It sucks. <laughs> it sucks that my <laughs> sure. friend died. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and every single person who is in need of transplant is known to somebody. And, and I, d- I don't care that I don't know who got the kidney. 
I mm-hmm. just know that we're not burying another black person. That family doesn't have to grieve. And and to me, who has buried black people in the South who have died from AIDS-related complications, that's all I need. Um, yeah. Again, this this idea that like, I think people put a lot of social hierarchy in everything. I think people put a lot of HIV stigma into everything. And, and both of those things do impede the implementation of the HOPE Act. Very helpful. A couple of things now I'm going to tell you a little bit from the clinician side of things. I teach again and again, although it's simplistic, that the patient is the world expert on their body. So the patient is the world expert on their body, but it is simplistic to take that at, at, at face value because... Here's something that happened to me just the other day. I had a, uh, a patient that was on a medication and that medication might have been causing them a side effect. And we were deciding together as to uh, whether we're going to stop the medication altogether or switch them to something else. And I said to them, what do you think? And they appropriately said to me, you're the doctor. So it, it's, it's a little simplistic on my side to say to the patient here, take the car keys, you drive, because we really are driving together. And, and as the physician, I do have more expertise in some things, but the patient knows their body the best. And then when you're dealing, dealing with people like you, you don't just know the body, your body the best. You also know the literature the best. That's a new world for us as, uh, as physicians sometimes, because we are used to being the, the ones in the driver's seat. Yeah, no, I, I definitely am aware of, obviously, I didn't go to medical school. But one of one of the motivating factors for me in terms of pursuing college, pursuing graduate school was just access to health care. The Affordable Care Act did not exist. Mm-hmm. Somebody with a pre-existing condition, uh, unless you, you had a job that had really good health insurance, it was just it was hard. So for me, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Georgetown because who the hell cares? I'm probably going to die before I have to pay back the student loans. Now the joke is on me. That's, that's <laughs> fine. I'm not happy to laugh about it, but, but <laughs> these were decisions that like kind of, it was unprecedented then. We didn't know how long people who had acquired it in early childhood would live. And no, but I think everyone was just prepared to keep me alive. They didn't really teach me how to live with a lifelong chronic illness. But one of the motivating factors was I just wanted to be an overqualified patient because that was the only way I knew how to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And yes, when I when I landed at Johns Hopkins, I don't think that they were ready for me. And at the same time, I think it's it's a little different having discussions with your everyday clinician, which I do have here in Atlanta, versus your research team. So I've always done research up in Maryland. I just discontinued after 20 years because the travel is a lot. So uh, the conversations I'm having with my regular everyday clinician are different than the ones that I'm having with my research clinician. And and truth be told, my research clinician should be talking to my everyday clinician. That part I'm, I'm fine about. But the at the end of the day, I'm just one of many, many patients in a caseload. So I do have to stay on top of things. And it should be a shared conversation. Certainly, as we've all been discussing, like none of the messages that bubble up leave room for nuance. And that's what platforms like this allow us to do. That was the hardest thing for me was to get my doctors to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed my nephrologist to talk to my ID doctor who needed to talk to the transplant surgeon. And I just needed that free flowing thing because I may have something or I may come upon something that 
may be a pre a PCP issue, but it also can transfer over to a transplant issue. Um, just to clarify, I lost my kidney in uh, December. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had the surgery on December 1st. Um, I was given that choice and that's what I chose. And the reason uh, my transplant lasted like six, six and a half years. Uh, but that those last six months was pretty much hell. Mm-hmm. Um, I was bleeding out of places I shouldn't be bleeding from. Mm-hmm. And uh, the surgeon was like, uh, just take it out. So we took it out and now I'm back. Uh, my T cells are back to normal. I'm doing really well. I'm waiting for another transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, however, one of the things that I've been working on is with this transplant group, which is national, um, which is uh, transplant surgeons, dietitians, social workers, people from CMS and all of that, and everybody else connected with the transplant is to try to f- find a way to use more of the discarded organs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I found out what Nina was talking about earlier. Out of 235 transplant centers around the country, only right now at the moment, 35 are actually allowed to do this. And so I was actually kind of shocked because <laughs> I thought that once it became law that everybody would be doing it. And I didn't and not until I talked to Nina, then I found out that there is a prerequisite for the particular transplant. So hopefully somebody will, you know, come on board and they'll drop the stigma and start doing these transplants on these people. Mm-hmm. This is a pointed shout out to Health and Human Services Secretary uh, Becerra to go ahead and make that directive. Uh, per the recommendation of the Advisory Council for Blood and Tissue Safety Availability to make HIV to HIV transplants standard of care so that anyone can go to any of the more than 250 transplant centers in this country who are living with HIV who can seek a transplant. Because in the absence of making that directive, with the legalization of the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, we are just choosing to allow recipients with HIV who need a transplant a choice on whether they want to die waiting on an HIV positive kidney or HIV negative kidney. Let's go HHS. All right. Well, I hope uh, that they're listening or if, or at least our staffers. <laughs> I, do, I do know some of, some of them. I consider them colleagues, the former HHS employee myself. So I will definitely be sharing this with them so that they know I have made a concrete and directed ask because we're getting in the way of patient autonomy at this point when you have people who are willing to make a legally binding decision to donate their organs upon death and the patients who say they're willing to receive these organs, but we're not honoring these, these authorizations that patients have made. And and that's irrespective of living donation. But I hope also that, you know, more people who are in a position like me uh, who have the, the privilege of good health and, health literacy and social support and all the things that are required to become a living donor, I hope that they will consider donating and um, would implore people to go ahead and read the paper in the Lancet Regional Health Americas entitled Living Kidney Donors Experience and Outcomes from a Case Series by the Hope and Action Consortium, first authored by uh, your colleague, Christine Durand, second authored by me, to find out like 
what where we are today and the things that you think are barriers to donation, like having depression. And this is in people not living with HIV as well. Like mm-hmm. among the three of us, it was a great case series because it showed you can be a donor if you have depression. You can be a donor if you have a smoking history. You can be a donor of any size. You can be a donor with well-controlled hypertension. And you can be a donor with HIV. So I, I didn't ask you if you had also read the paper, but there's a lot packed in there for three patients. And mm-hmm. when we know these organs do work from deceased donors, we don't have any expectation that they would be less effective in living donors. And uh, when HHS, I'm going to put it out there, when HHS someday makes these standard of care, uh, that change will also affect living donation for, for people with HIV. So what I can say is that when HHS does make it standard care, it'll be because of the pioneering work that the two of you have done in terms of making it uh, something that people are comfortable with. And these yeah. things do not just happen. Yeah. If I can shift gears to uh, a topic that you guys are really experts on, in terms of stigma, it seems like there's illnesses that are... Uh, not going to say cool to have, but, you know, breast cancer awareness month is, uh, it's, it's a, uh, I mean, nobody wants breast cancer, obviously, but, but having breast cancer is, is something that, that does not have the stigma of having HIV. Where have we gone with HIV stigma? How can we get it closer to where breast cancer is? And, um, what would you like to see in your lifetime? Would you like me to go first? I yes. Can go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, people have said that, you know, prevention is like weeds in a garden. Every day, somebody's coming into their sexual debut. So there's always like the need for education and things like that. So I don't think the stigma is going away just because of how HIV is, re- is acquired. Uh, but at the foundation of all of that is this like, moralization of disease. And I, I think I, I can speak for a lot of us who, who are long-term survivors of HIV. Goodness, when coronavirus came out, you saw a lot of the same things, you know, change, change the male condom to the face condom and masks and, and whether or not people are perfect users and what did you do to get coronavirus? And uh, for me personally, it was a little traumatic. I had to mute a lot of words in social media because I I didn't survive this long with HIV to go through it all over again to watch mm-hmm. us like not learn the lessons of, of HIV. And othering uh, through stigma has a purpose. It's a it's a it's a tool for people to make themselves feel better about that happens to other people that will not happen to me. And then talk to people for whom HIV or coronavirus happens. That's the key thing is like people were in the state of denial that it would never happen to them. And that's when it's most likely to happen to them. And I think, you know, stigma has so many factors that cause it. So it's hard to say like, what's the magic bullet and what should we do better? But I think, at the core of it is that we have to recognize that everybody has dignity, that dignity is interconnected. And, you know, I, one day I hope with these transplants that people just don't think of it as an HIV thing. It's mm-hmm. uh, Nina Martinez, the HIV patient who donated her HIV positive organ to a recipient and only benefits that guy. 
or it only benefits Ken Teasley. That's not true. When I donated, I took somebody living with HIV off the deceased donor wait list, which freed up the next HIV negative donor organ to the next person waiting. When I donated and told people that the HOPE Act existed, the next person I tried to donate to after my friend died, she was listed in Massachusetts. And her nephrologist, by the time her nephrologist called to schedule her port for dialysis placement, she was like, no, I went to a Hope Center and I got transplanted after waiting only two months. You know, it's, it's a, I wish that there were more easier ways to tackle stigma on a systems level, but, but can never discount the uh, weeds in the garden effort that um, Ken and I are both actively engaged in and and but it's going to take all of us people in all facets of whoever plays a part in how these transplants between HIV positive people work it can't just be one or the other it's got to be all of us I really can't add anything to that I've seen so much over the last <laughs> seven years I actually had someone to say, you only got the transplant because you have HIV. No, I got the transplant because I made myself a better transplant candidate. But, you know, other than that, it's like, you, I don't know, I, I've, I'm continually having the same conversations about the same things over and over and over, and they're not changing. The behavior is not changing. I think right now I'm a little optimistic and pessimistic at the same time about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, I do feel it's changing, but it's not changing enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it now has to be more top down than bottom up. One of the things I've been talking to Nina about is I'm tired. Like, <laughs> I'm tired. I've been doing this for over 25 years now, and yeah, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really time for me, and I need to figure out what I'm going to do, especially in the future. I'm eventually going to have to let something go. Um, mm -hmm. um, I, I really do, uh, because it's more about I have to take care of my health first mm -hmm. uh, before I can help somebody else. So, yeah. So that's a great segue to what are you all working on now or what would you like to be working on now if, if you aren't? And uh, if, if your golf swing is one of the answers, that's a good answer, too. <laughs> Who has time for golf? <laughs> Certainly not me. You know, just having been an advocate for so long, you do start to question, especially with your continued survival, um, unexpected continued survival, you think. Well, when do I get to live for me? As I said, that chronically ill children grow up thinking, you know, will I live long enough to leave a legacy? Will people remember me? And for me personally, donating the kidney was my legacy. I have definitely cemented my place in history and put my name there. And, and Ken has done that as well, you know, by being able to, to want to and to receive a kidney from an HIV positive donor organ. I will go ahead and say that the transplant center he's at, Mount Sinai, I called them for another patient and they were even, they were unaware that they were approved to do living donor HIV to HIV transplants. Uh, if anyone in New York is interested, is living with HIV and 
wants to join the extremely small club of HIV positive living donors. There are about eight globally, I think, at last count. Only some of them are reported on in the paper because not all of them included comprehensive outcome to, to go ahead and contact Mount Sinai and I'll give them something to do as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's like I just turned 40, an age that I didn't think uh, I would ever reach. And um I think it's different for people of color. There's there's a lot that impedes our survival in this country, uh, getting past the 30s. And you would think, you would think that by publishing the paper, my work on hope is done. That's not the case. I had a long game when I started this. And uh, the thing that sustains me through the last five years is, you know, I don't want what happened to my late friend to happen to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do everything in my power, which is a lot. <laughs> Are you listening, Secretary Becerra? Um, to make sure that, you know, I didn't leave any stone unturned. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to come back full circle now. I will still find a way for me to like live life for myself. That's definitely a part of it. But the next part is uh, I'm working on a documentary on the history of these HIV to HIV transplants and how they came to the U.S., from South Africa, from the pioneering work of Dr. Elmi Muller. The documentary in progress is named In Absence of Evidence. There was a a Fulbright scholar who got funded to go and and capture Dr. Muller's story. But again, that's only half the story. And we are seeking funding and in in a second development phase to add the stories of patients like myself, like Ken and several others that people can have the the global, literally global worldview of of how these transplants came to be and and to put that uh, story in mass media, because again, mass media was an effective motivator for me to donate. And I I hope through making this documentary that people will be motivated to to help implement hope here in the US. It's very interesting to me. And I was just having a conversation with somebody who's doing a master's degree. This is a a physician who's been a physician and a great physician for decades and he's doing a master's degree in the history of medicine and his focus is on the other side we do a lot of history of medicine well this doctor did this and this discovery was done that and he's focusing on the patient experience and the individuals The pe- the pe- there are people who who had the idea who were like we need to stop waiting but then there, there's the other side of the coin the people who said yes the people mm-hmm. whose yeses made change happen so i will say there there is a gofundme for in absence of evidence if anyone is inclined to share their spare coin so that we can create some new documentary shorts in order to um bolster the second phase of, of development in and updating the story because yes i love dr Mueller's story i hope she has read the paper I, I don't know if she has or not but certainly not everything that i do is is to perpetuate my own legacy or that of my late friend but also dr Mueller's as well and, and the folks at hopkins you know what a, what a story to be part of and um, i thank you for helping us share it in absence of evidence uh looking forward to it Ken, you were going to say something. Um, no, not really. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm doing so, a couple, a lot of things right now. I'm trying to pare them down. Uh, one of the things I'm doing is, of course, I said the transplant group to try to figure out what to do about these uh, discarded kidneys. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest thing I'm doing right now is being a member of the share board, which is a prize of long-term survivors who are interested in research and trying to get us uh, access to research, access to creating the questions and the surveys. And because one of the things we found was that we're not so much asked how you're doing. We get asked that by our specific doctors. Um, Mm -hmm. But when it comes to research, we're like uh, kind of thrown away. And so we're trying to uh, make us kind of part of that research nowadays. We're actually in the dissemination phase. So we have some stuff coming out later on uh, this year uh, Mm -hmm. through Bukori. And that's all I can say about that right now. All right. Well, I hope you get funded. We actually were funded. I want to take this into another session, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, We'll see how that goes um, after this dissemination phase. Okay. All right, I'm going to switch gears again, and I'm going to say that one of the things is is that we've been touching on is the critical nature of the patient's voice. And as doctors... Uh, and researchers, we're kind of feeling our way through it. What are some pieces of advice and a framework as to how we can do better at it? I mean, I think it's generous to say that clinicians want to do better at it. I, I would be hard convinced to think that they want to do it at all. I, I think The fear of being wrong is like an easy excuse to lean on, but I also know that having patient engagement slows things down and, you know, people in academia are on very rigid timelines and things like that. So, you know, obviously bringing more cooks to the table, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's not necessarily a fear of doing it wrong. It's a fear of um, one, letting go of the conversation and learning things that you didn't expect. I think people are afraid of that. It comes down to being uncomfortable with, or being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and lots of, lots of patients have that comfort. Um, I will say that, you know, I can't imagine as Dr. Duran's second author, you know, that, that engaging with me was, was easy for her (laughs) because, you know, the things that I was able to identify that were issues in the research process and the things I was able to identify that were problematic reviews from peer experts um, that we were able to address in the eventual paper, you know, based on, on experts' misconceptions of HIV, like I was able to see that for what it was because I've been living with HIV for 40 years and I wasn't afraid to speak up about it. And so Allowing patients to speak up and listening, even if it doesn't make you feel comfortable. Like I think medical training teaches clinicians how to have difficult conversations with their patients. It mm-hmm. doesn't teach people how to have difficult conversations with themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if people are sitting here like, I've never engaged with community because yes, we have a robust history in HIV of acting up. Mm-hmm. But again, power conceives nothing without a demand, and and that can happen in an academic relationship as well. Um, There are certainly power dynamics in play when when it comes to research. And 
again, you need us for table one. We are at a point in the HIV pandemic in the United States where there's lots of treatment available. So to be frank, like HIV patients don't need your research uh, for the most part. And what are you doing to, to, to reach out and have that conversation? Like it's becoming less of a nice to have for patient engagement and much more of a need to have. So mm-hmm. if you're worried about doing it wrong. Like, I don't think you're going to get people in your table one. Mm-hmm. So let me be a little bit more specific about some of the fears that I have. It would be uh, if, if, say, I wanted to get a patient advisory panel together, I would be afraid that they would all, uh, for, say, aspergillosis, just as an example, that I, I would be afraid that then they would all know that they have aspergillosis and that I'm somehow violating their HIPAA rights. Or, or if um, I'm interacting with somebody on social media who's a patient, I'm afraid that, that there could be a HIPAA violation or that I could say something that would be uh, that would come off as as offensive or stigmatizing when my goal is to to learn and to have and to engage. But do you see how you're forming these? You're finding ways to keep patient out of the room a priori instead of it's it's not about who's not in the room. It's about who's mm-hmm. in the room. I think patients will let you know that they want to be in the room. And I will mm-hmm. say, I do have a beef with community advisory boards a little bit. Uh, because they're like panels of pick your brain. And again, the engagement is not engagement unless it's two-way and reciprocal. So I would I would say your, your biggest concern would be should, would be in creating that not to make it that kind of thing, not mm-hmm. to take the patient's time just to pick their brain for your satisfaction. But conversely, what are you doing to contribute to their knowledge base? And let's be honest, professional development because you're in this research together and you need both sides to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So it's be like just for your benefit or, or, you know, because NIH says you need community engagement, but then you don't demonstrate it because it's only one way and it's researchers taking insight from the patient and, and not completing that feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can anything on, 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 on your side that, uh, any hard truths, additional hard truths that uh, we, the uh, medical community, need to hear so we can be better? Oh, well, at the beginning of my uh, journey, it was, you know, pick a discipline. Uh, just pick a discipline. I've been through five nephrologists, seven uh, primary care, and the biggest reason was they found a better job somewhere else. When you get to the point, uh, especially like when I was, because I'm here in New York by myself, all of my family that I had here had left. Uh, They had gone back down south or they passed away. So I was basically here by myself. So the only really support I had at the time was actually my doctors. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. Or I decided to accept the chief of staff position and okay it's like well are you going to have time to see me Mm -hmm. Uh, so you end up leaving and finding another doctor and then the cycle starts all over again Mm -hmm. i remember when i met my nephrologist it was like uh are you going to leave and he actually told me no which was actually cool because we were the same age and so now you know at 57 and he's i think he's in his 40s you know he's learned a lot from me 
Mm-hmm. And I've been lucky in, in, in my journey that I've actually found doctors who actually took the time to listen. And it's easy to say, oh, well, your doctor listens and blah, blah. blah. No, he really listens. <laughs> he really listens. Um, and you can actually tell the difference. I actually had one that wouldn't even look at me. And I, I, I just two or three appointments and I was just like, I have to I can't I can't deal with this. And uh, he actually happened to be a mentor for one of my doctors. And so when I told the other doctor why I left, um, he much must have mentioned it to him because when I was forced by CMS to go back, he actually looked at me, not only looked at me, but he actually smiled for once. Like I had known this man for a while and he had never smiled. He had, and as many jokes as I told or whatever, he had never smiled. Uh, but it was the day he actually sent me to the hospital before I started dialysis is the day that he smiled. And it was just, it was just one of the weirdest things. But uh, when I looked at him and he was smiling, I was just like, yes, something is working. But the other thing too is listen to your people. They may not have gone to medical school or any of that stuff, but they do know how they feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I know when I was complaining of my kidneys hurting, and they were like, well, show me where it is. And I was like, well, the pain is here. Oh, but the kidneys don't hurt and this and that and this. And it's like, okay, I went and found another nephrologist that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the one that I see now, he actually understood that and was able to tell me why it was like that. And, you know, that, those kind of things. So, yeah, just pay attention, listen to them. And especially when it comes to how we feel about certain things. Yeah, definitely listen and uh, let us in the tables. Uh, It doesn't matter. One of the things I'm on a cab at my clinic and nobody asked me if I had uh, any kind of disease or anything. They just said, do you want to be a member? And I was like, well, let me go see what this is about. And it's actually one of the best board positions that I, I actually have right now because I'm sitting on the board with other people just like me with mm-hmm. clinicians and we're talking about things to improve the clinic and they're actually listened to and you can actually see them being done or seeing them being implemented. So, mm-hmm. and we're actually in a, in a process of a move. Uh, <laughs> we'll be in a new location next uh, next month. So. It's been very good, and this is like the first time I've actually done something to this level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's like a destructive assumption that patients with HIV, like that, their that their only qualification or competency or skills is related to their HIV diagnosis, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a ridiculous yeah. thing that people operate off of because you know, I've had HIV my entire life. Clearly, there was a life outside of that diagnosis, and I had to grow up and and build skills, build qualifications, build competencies. But none of that is really valued in the clinical encounter or in research. And um, I think it goes back to my point of when researchers invite us to the table, it's for one thing that they have in their mind, but there really is no communal conversation of, of 
letting people talk about what they're good at and how they might contribute to research. And um, mm. this, this whole idea of we're afraid of doing it wrong will fail st- stands for first attempt and learning. And you're not going to get anywhere if you don't even put yourself at the starting line. So I think just a greater appreciation that, yes, generally, simplistically, you know that your patients have lives, but they also have brains. They know how to use them. You know, you just you just need to ask and be open to it, be open to the discomfort that may come with that. It's really not as serious as you all think it is. And and people will surprise you. I mean, mm-hmm. patients do amazing trailblazing things if you let them. <laughs> I think it goes back to this old, the military thing. When you're in the military, you have hundreds of people working for one goal. Um, that was one of the things that I missed when I came home. Um, because everybody's for themselves and and you can actually see it and taste mm-hmm. it. It's palpable. So one of the things that I've noticed as both a doctor and then somebody who myself or my family uh, need care is it seems like the process has become more dehumanized than in the past few years. And, you know, COVID is, is like... Um, I look at it like like water. It exposes the cracks. Uh, I mean, it carries its own problems, but exposes the cracks. And it seemed like in the, in the COVID and post COVID, things have gotten worse. I was calling for a uh, a prescription to uh, to the pharmacy, and and I had to go through the phone tree with three different uh, phone messages trying to tell me that I need to get my COVID vaccine, and realizing that you know it's irrelevant to me. I've gotten it five times already. But uh, having to navigate through that now as a doctor, I do get to jump the line. Live. Hey, here we go. Is that a, uh, it, so this is not this is on audio. But th- what did you show us? <laughs> I'm joining you today in the middle of a, a fierce T-cell rally because I did get double vaccinated yesterday. Uh, I decided not to wait for the new coronavirus vaccine booster mm-hmm. uh, because I was attending the U.S. conference on AIDS in 12 days. So I did get double double boosted with an updated flu booster, but still last year's bivalent coronavirus vaccine booster for the second time. So I am definitely with you guys today, uh, feeling all the reactogenicity and uh, <laughs> a little, more, it's a little Mormon here because my T cells. Well, here's hoping for those T cells to do what they need to do to keep you uh, protected. But uh, the uh, getting back to to the, the point. But well, um, one thing I wanted to yeah. say is welcome to our world. <laughs> yes, yes, and and I I'm privileged in innumerable ways. But one of the ways I'm privileged is that I can hit the number to say to go to the doctor's line. So tell me about the dehumanization. Has it gotten? Is it just my imagination that's gotten worse, or has it always been awful? And uh, what can we do to make it better? I think I think it's not unprecedented. I think that I think coronavirus was more, obviously, it's transmissible in different ways than HIV. But it brought to the surface a lot of the same problems with inequity with, I mean, maybe just in sheer volume of people affected that that can certainly make your job harder. But I haven't found that anything with coronavirus wasn't anything that we didn't already see with HIV. It's that we didn't learn the lessons from HIV that would have helped us with coronavirus, with the exception of using like the AIDS clinical trial sites to help push out vaccine development for coronavirus. Yeah. I remember when it first started, uh, one of the first posts I put out was, this is oddly familiar. 
and it was. And then I had a retort by an advocate <laughs> who says, but we didn't get a stimulus <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, one of the things that that was uh, very different for me with COVID was the um, the politicization of drugs like chloroquine and ivermectin, which uh, I had not remembered. Maybe I was too young when HIV first came. I guess AZT maybe was politicized to a certain extent, but I didn't remember politicians telling their constituents not to take uh, something that could be life saving. Not in the U.S. Uh, you, you are absolutely correct. In South Africa and other places, it was definitely a uh, a phenomenon, and and maybe still is. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, people pushed, still push garlic and diet cures, like herbal cures, like all the comments on my YouTube video of of my donation at Johns Hopkins, or the bulk of the comments are garbage comments about HIV cure, and I think that's still happening too. A certain extent. So um, while it didn't really happen, it just happened with like food items, maybe instead of alternative therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Which in some ways is so tragic because good nutrition is important, but it's it's not an either or. Right. Right. Capitalism. No, We're trying to make a buck. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I have learned a lot, and it's, this has opened uh, new vistas for me. And uh, when I was a resident, the program director says, when you're uncomfortable, it's a sign that you're just about to learn something new. Well, you guys have definitely made me uncomfortable at times, and but also uh, thrilled in that uh, I'm learning new things. And also uh, so uh, impressed and amazed by your um, your thoughtfulness, your Bravery, yes, we use words like bravery and hero maybe too often when we're talking about baseball players, and I love baseball, but uh, what you have done and are doing in terms of working to uh, advance science, save people's lives, and set an example is, in my opinion, heroic. Thank you very much. 